Welcome to the Transformation Church Podcast, where we're leading people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. We hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you a fresh perspective on God and His Word so you can see transformation in your own life. Enjoy the message. Turn with me today. We're going to be looking at a story in Luke chapter 7. And uh, while you're making your way there, let me, let me ask you this question. Have you, ever, have you ever felt like there was a gap between who you are and who you're meant to be? A gap like you kind of know who you are right now and what, what the season of life right now, but a gap between that and who God has destined you to be. I remember hearing a statement a while back that, that was this, that I may not be where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be, right? Like, I could say amen to that, but, but when I think about that, yes, it's true, but it's also a tragedy. And it's a tragedy because so many of us in our life, we settle. We settle for where we are right now, and we miss out on what we were meant to be. We, we live our life, we experience this life with all of this unlived potential on the inside of us. And then, and then we wonder why life is passionless, why we seem to be kind of miserable going through the motions in life. And the reason why is because we've determined that we're going to kind of live our life in the gap or short of God's purposes for our life. And so today, I wanna to take a little bit of time and I wanna to talk to you um, really from the context of what I experienced in my own life um, and, and really two powerful truths that if you'll, if you'll kind of take these and if you'll practice these, it will begin to reduce the gap between where you are right now and where God has created you to be. Today, I wanna to talk to you from this title, Jars, Labels, and Lids. Jars, labels, and lids. Hey, let's pray real quick before we go into today's message. Say this out loud with me. Father, as I open your word today, speak to me. May I have ears to hear, a heart to receive, and the courage to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me, uh, let me ask you this. How many of you like awkward situations? I, my life is full of awkward situations. How many like, like the times that you're like, um, you're out in public and somebody waves at you, right? And you're like, hey, and then you realize that they're waving at the person right behind you, right? <laughs> awkward. Um, or the time, this one happens to me all the time, the time that you go and, and, and you're saying hey to somebody and you go in with a fist bump and they come with a handshake and then you're like, and then you change yours to a handshake, but they change theirs to a fist bump, and it just totally messes up the whole moment. Or what about, have you ever had this happen before? Like, like um, you took somebody to a homecoming dance, and you got ready to give her a kiss right before you went home for the night, and right as you were leaning in to kiss her, um, somebody yelled at her, and she turned her face, and you kissed her on the cheek. Anybody? Oh, that was just me. Oh, no. My life is full of awkward moments, like the time, like as a pastor, I'd been a pastor for maybe a couple years, and, um, and I was doing a wedding, and um, I had two weddings that were within a couple week period of time. And, um, and so I did the first wedding, everything went over great, um, came to my second wedding, and I was taking parts of the ceremony from the first one, 
and copying and pasting them into the ceremony for the second one, right? And so I go through the ceremony, everything's great, and we get to the end, and it gets to the part where I have to declare um, th this couple as husband and wife for the first time, and, um, and I, forgot, <laughs> I forgot to do something. Um, I forgot to check the name. <laughs> And, and it had the names of the people that I had married two weeks before. And I didn't catch it until after I said it. And then after I said it, it was like, it came out and like, it didn't initially register in my mind until I saw every, all these family members out there looking at me like, who in the world are you talking about? And then I realized I said the wrong name. And then I was so nervous, I couldn't remember their names. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I wanted to crawl out of the chapel that day. I mean, awkward, awkward moments. And when we look at this story in Luke chapter seven, it's a story that is like super awkward. Like if you could just like, if you could just parachute down into this moment in Luke chapter seven that we're going to read about here in a second, I mean, you would feel awkward. You would feel awkward for Jesus. You would feel awkward for the woman we're going to talk about. You'd feel awkward for the people that were in the room. You would feel awkward for the people sitting around the ass outskirts. Out we're going to have to cut that part, man. <laughs> You know, it'd be okay if I would have just kept going, but, but once that came out of my mouth, I was like, <laughs> some of you are like, oh, now I get it. Um, that was not in my notes, by the way. Um, <laughs> outskirts of the room is what I meant to say. And, and it would be awkward, just as awkward as this moment is right now in front of everybody. <laughs> and so in Luke chapter seven, Starting in verse 36, what we see here in this story is a guy named Simon who's a Pharisee. Now, if you've been around church, if you've read a little bit of the Bible, um, you probably know this. If this is the first time being in a service and, and you know nothing about the Bible, welcome. This is a good place to be if you're just kicking the tires of faith. But um, Pharisees were a group of people that were super religious, right? Everything they did about their life was all about rules. It was all about you kind of like what you're wearing and how you're acting and what your face looks like and like all this stuff, all these rules that they would, that they would kind of govern by. And so when Jesus comes, Jesus is coming to kind of throw all of that stuff out. And so they cannot stand Jesus. And so this guy, Simon, um, hears that Jesus is coming into town. And so he decides he wants to invite Jesus over, like an invitation-only um, kind of party. And Jesus is, um, he's the guy, he's the guest of honor, okay? Now, the thing is, is that you would think initially, hey, that's pretty cool. Like Jesus is gonna go have dinner with these guys and they're gonna hang out and they're gonna have some laughs and all that stuff. But that was not Simon's intention, See, Simon as a Pharisee wanted nothing to do with Jesus, couldn't stand that he was pulling the attention from the Pharisees, from them to himself. And so Simon's goal in this moment was to try to catch Jesus, 
to try to put him in a situation to where um, he would sacrifice his credibility, that he would do something. It was a, an entrapment kind of moment, kind of invitation where he's having all of these people over and he's got Jesus in the room with hopes that Jesus says something that um, is going to make him lose his influence in the eyes of other people. Now, the context, the social context or cultural context in those days is that oftentimes they would have these dinners and the Pharisees would leave their door open. And the reason why they'd leave their door open is because they would allow people from the community that were not good enough to be invited, right? They weren't good enough to come and to sit down at the table and have a meal and have conversation. But the Pharisees would open the door so that they could come in and they could kind of hang out on the outskirts, got it right that time, on the outskirts of the room of his home and to observe the conversation and everything that was going on. Now you may wonder, okay, why in the world would they open their door? Why in the world would they have people, if they weren't going to invite them in the first place, why are they letting them into the room? And the reason why is because they wanted all the people that were sitting across the wall to look at the Pharisees and the guests of honor and to become envious of what they're talking about and their lifestyle and the influence that they have. Now, if you think about it, that's not very different than the culture that we have now. The difference is, is back then it was physical that people would physically sit around the room and to watch. Nowadays, it's digital, right? Isn't that what we do with social media? Like we're following all these people and we're basically sitting along the wall of social media, looking at their lives and becoming envious of what they're wearing and who their friends are and how many followers they got and all that stuff. And it's not any different. It's the same thing. It's just that was physical and now it's digital. And so what we're seeing here is we're seeing this moment that Simon and his Pharisees, they got, they got Jesus in there. They got all these people that are kind of sitting along the wall listening. And Simon's goal is to do everything he can to entrap Jesus. So he says something that destroys his reputation. Now, I don't know about you, but I've learned in my life that I can fool man, but I can't fool God. And so we got this moment where it's a setup entrapment moment and all of a sudden awkward begins to step into the room because this woman walks in and in the Bible, we don't even know her by her name. We know her by her sin, right? Like the Bible says that she is an immoral woman and we're going to talk about that in a second, but I want you to think about the cultural context in this moment that it's a woman who back in, in Bible days, just part of the culture, it's not scriptural, but it's part of the cultural of those days, is that women were kind of considered second class. And so here's a woman who has a lot of sin in her background, right? A woman who is gonna be named according to her sin and reputation, not her name, and the fact that she's a woman in the, second, in, in the first place. Like I'm sure that room is full of other guys and she's the woman that walks in. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 37. It says, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, talking about Jesus, that she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with 
expensive perfume. Now, it's important for you to understand that this alabaster jar, um, in those days, the cost, the value of that was about equivalent to a year's worth of wage. So what she's bringing with her into this room to interact and to connect with Jesus is something of great value to her. Now, watch what it says in verse 38, that then she knelt behind him at his feet. And it says weeping. Now, this is why it's behind. So in those days, they would have a table set up. Those tables weren't like ours with the high and you pull up chairs. They lay into that. And so head first, like in those days, the feet were considered to be the dirtiest part of the body. And so their feet is as far away as possible from the table. And they're just kind of lounging, leaning into the table and they grab some food and they talk and their feet are back here. And so this woman is up against the wall, begins to walk up and Jesus's feet are laid here. And she begins to come up and the Bible says that she is weeping. And it says that her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Now, what I can imagine in that moment is his feet so dirty that when she began to cry on his feet, it began to leave these like trails of clean skin on Jesus's feet. And she begins to use her hair. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about a woman's hair being her glory. And so not only is she bringing something of value that is, is a part of, of, of what she has and what she's earned, but she's physically bringing the best part of herself and touching it to the dirtiest part of the body. And she begins to cry and begins to wipe his feet, wiping them off with her hair. And it says that, that then uh, she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. I mean, what an awkward situation. What an awkward atmosphere that had to be. She was so moved by Jesus that she steps in and, and kind of breaks through the cultural norms and, and brings all of this expensive perfume and just starts crying and wiping Jesus's feet. And and we see in verse 39 as it begins to move, like why she was so moved. It says that when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and I want you to know if you got your Bible, you need to circle this because I never, I never noticed this until this week. That when he invited him, saw this, that he said to himself, circle that word himself, right? So Simon's not speaking out loud this, what we're going to, this is what he says to himself. He says, if this man were a prophet, that he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now notice he didn't say that out loud. He's thinking that to himself. And then in verse 40, then Jesus answered his thoughts. Awkward. I mean, can you imagine like the thoughts that you had about me 10 minutes ago when I slipped up being on the screen for everybody to see? Awkward. And Simon's got this moment 
right? Where he is thinking critically about Jesus, trying to figure out a way to entrap Jesus, and Jesus answers his thoughts. It says that Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. That sounds like something my parents would have said when I was a kid and I did something wrong. I got something to say to you. And Simon goes, and I could just hear the snarky tone in Simon's response. Oh, go ahead, teacher, right? And this is what Jesus says in verse 41. Then Jesus told him a story that a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, concealing their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he concealed the larger debt. And Jesus says, that's right. And in verse 34, it says, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, so imagine this, how does he turn to the woman and say to Simon, Simon had to be moving around the table at this point, would be my guess. And Jesus is looking back at the woman and seeing, eyeing Simon, who knows what he's doing. I would assume that he's kind of walking around and just kind of scoping the situation. And he's got thoughts going through his mind and he's just being critical in this moment about this woman and what Jesus is doing. And so he looks over at the woman and says to Simon, look at this woman who's kneeling here. He says, when I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she was, has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the first time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. You see, in those days, the, 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 the culture was when you would have a guest come into your room, those are the three things that you would do. You would wash their feet because, listen, back in those days, the animals traveled on the same roads as people did. And they wore open sandals. So I probably don't need to go into any more detail about what could have been on Jesus's feet but he walks in and Simon chose not to wash him. Simon, he walks in and Simon chose not to kiss, to greet Jesus. Simon chose not to anoint Jesus with oil. And Jesus is saying that this woman did all three. And in 47, Jesus says this, I tell you, her sins, and Jesus says, they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. One of the things that I find that's kind of interesting in that text is that Jesus is setting up with Simon this idea that the more that you are forgiven of, the greater your response to Jesus with that forgiveness. 
The lesser you feel like you are forgiven of, the less your response is to Jesus. And it kind of makes me kind of wonder sometimes, like if we were to evaluate our worship to God, what's it speaking? Like, is it speaking our perception of what God has forgiven us of is, is kind of small, it's kind of little, or is it great? Right? Like our response to spending time with the Lord in prayer and reading our Bible and getting connected in the church and making an impact and a difference in the lives of other people. Like, do our actions and the way that we live our life, do they speak to us understanding how significant our sin was that Jesus died and paid for? And I think one of the greatest weapons that Satan has in our lives against us is to try to get us minimizing the sin in our life. And so we go around in our life and we, and we look at other people that don't look like us, that don't behave like us, that don't speak like us, and we point fingers over there all the time talking about how bad they are and how messed up they are and what they need changed, and we don't even recognize our own sin. I mean, wasn't that what Simon was doing? Simon was the dude that followed all the laws. Like, the way, he came to church dressed the way that everybody thought you should come to church dressed. Like, he did the things that, that could check off the boxes of, of faith. But yet, for him, he had Jesus in the room. Like, how many of us can... How many of us can experience Jesus in the room and never experience him in our heart? Like to have this like disconnected relationship with God to where we minimize our sin, we minimize the, the reality that it don't matter what your testimony looks like, if you sinned, you're going to hell. <laughs> hey, that's a quotable for the, for the don't, don't give any context, just say that if you, if, I'm just teasing. Like, I come from a background, parents messed up, me messed up. I got saved a month before I turned 21. Like, if you can think it, I probably did it. But that doesn't mean that my testimony, that my response to God should be any greater than the person that grew up in church that had just some sin and kind of navigated the church world. They had one foot in, one foot out, and they didn't really go all in with God until their 20s or 30s or 60s or whatever. Like that sin is the same as my sin. And if we could just, if we could just understand that when we walk into the room, that if it wasn't for Jesus dying on a cross, If it wasn't for him stretching out his arms, that I would be lost for eternity. And it doesn't matter how significant I think my sin is. It matters how significant God thinks my sin is. And he looks down and he says, all sin is equal. They may have different ramifications in our life, but if I'm going to lie and I'm going to have adultery, they are equally sinful and short of what God wants in my life. Therefore, I need his forgiveness in my life in order to experience all of what he has in my life. And so when I come in the church and we get into worship, 
You see this little introvert over there kind of moving around and shaking his hands and moving around. And it's not because that's who I am. It's because I recognize how significant my sin was and what Jesus died to forgive me of. And today I stand healed. Today I stand redeemed. Today I stand put back together again because of his blood in my life. Man, what would our worship services look like if every single one of us walked in recognizing that, oh man, I don't belong in this place, but God has invited me in this place and he wants to use me despite what I've done in my life. Whew. Verse 49 says, the men at the table said amongst themselves, so I could see him in the back. They're whispering, looking over at this woman, just critical and looking at Jesus critical and whispering among themselves saying, who is this man? Can you see the emotion on his face? Like, who is this man? Who's he think he is going around forgiving people of sins? And Jesus looks at the woman with that still going on in the moment. And you can't tell me she wasn't hearing the whispers behind her, right? You can't tell me that she wasn't feeling the awkwardness of everybody in the room being critical of her and Jesus in the moment. And Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Listen, some of you in your life have allowed the whispers behind you to pull your eyes off of Jesus in your spiritual journey. And you've allowed all these voices behind you that are whispering and being critical of the, the fact that you're not perfect. And, and you said, you know what, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to get my life right and I'm going to start living for God. And then six months later, you tripped up with drinking again or doing drugs. And now all these people are back here whispering behind you saying, oh, see, I told you it wasn't going to work out. I told you God's not real, like all this kind of stuff. And what's happened is, is you have pulled your eyes off of Jesus and you're living listening to the voices. Jesus looks at this woman and one of the things that I think that just hits me in the moment that I think is so amazing about this awkward situation is she never took her eyes off of Jesus. It was her staying locked in with Jesus that he looks at her and speaks these powerful words that your faith has saved you, but not just for the moment. Now your life that has been full of drama, full of speculation, full of ridicule, Jesus looks at her and says, now go in peace. Go in peace. I find it so fascinating in this moment that there's two sinners in the room. One walks around in their life making them think that they're better than everybody else that's wearing the kind of coat of Christianity, but they've got, their sin is just as bad as the woman who is known by her reputation 
not her name, stepping into an awkward situation or creating an awkward situation, both sinful people. And Jesus sees this woman's desperation and the fact that she, she focused on Jesus, that he demonstrates his power to bring transformation in people's lives that other people seem to dismiss. And I just think like, if I was in the room and I was sitting around the edge, like how awkward would that moment have been? And I began to think about that gap. I began to think about the gap of where we are right now and the life that we know that God has for us and, and how do we reduce that gap? Tell him I'll call him back later. Um, I'm just teasing, you're all good. How do we reduce the gap? There's two things, and these are quick, so I'm, I'm, I'm laying in the plane. These are two things in my life, right, that I had to really get, I had to have the courage to address these two areas in my life in order for me to be able to find victory and to reduce the gap of who I used to be and who people have told me that I am and who God has created me to be. And this gap, these two things, the first one is labels and the second one is lids. And our worship team is gonna is begin to, to prepare. You know that I'm starting to land the plane when the worship team gets up. <laughs> and what I wanna do today is I, wanna, I want to show you this as it relates to a jar. This woman brings a jar, right? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter four, that um, verse seven, it says, we now have this light shining in our hearts. Look what it says, but we ourselves are like fragile jars containing this great treasure. What's the great treasure? It's his glory and our potential. His glory and our potential. And it's in the jar. And the first thing in our life that, that tends to create this gap between where we are now and where God wants to take us is labels. Every jar typically has a label. And what does the label do? A label describes the contents of what's inside the jar. For me, that represents our mind. It represents the things that people have said over us and the things that we think about ourselves. And so what happens is, as we go through life and, and we get called, we get these labels that are placed on us, right? Like, I don't know if you ever had the, the label of being lazy, right? Did your parents ever say, like, my parents said that and I've said it over my kids too. It's awful. <laughs> Um, but it's amazing what the enemy uses to stick in people's heart to become a voice over and over again. What about this one? Like, have you ever been labeled that you're selfish? I mean, we have all these labels, like maybe for you, maybe, maybe it's ugly, maybe it's unfaithful. Like, I don't know what the label is. Maybe it's not good enough. Maybe it's you're... You feel unappreciated. And what happens is in our life is that we end up spending our life 
with this great treasure, which is his glory and our potential. And we allow the label, what other people have spoken over us to begin to define what's inside of us. And so these labels began to kind of, um, they began to kind of overtake his glory and his potential in our life. And, and we walk around in our life and we begin to speak these things over ourselves that, you know what, they said I'm ugly. Maybe I am ugly. They kept saying I was lazy. Maybe I am lazy. Maybe I've got to become a workaholic now in order to offset what people have told me as a kid of being lazy. Like they've said, I'm not gonna be good enough to be a part of their group or good enough to be on their team. And now that's pushed me. Like I, I'm all about business and it's business first and it's like, it's cutthroat and I'm gonna show all these people 30 years later at my reunion that I got all this money that I, oh, I am good enough. Don't you wish you had all this money I got, right? Like that's what we tend to do with labels in our life as we go to the opposite extreme. What ends up happening is we end up disqualifying ourselves of all that God has for us and what he wants to do in our lives because we walk around with these labels. Friend, you need to know today that the only person that has the right to label you is the one who made you. And so everything that has been spoken and everything that has become magnetic in your life that you walk around and every time you step up to the precipice of a new season and you feel like God is challenging you and the voices on the back of your head that keep you from taking the step, like those are labels that have been spoken over you in your life that are keeping you from God's ultimate potential. But when we'll recognize that despite our past, despite where we've been and what we've walked through, that God labels us differently. That he begins to speak through his word over our lives. And he, he gives us his own labels of no, that, that jar is holy. That jar is blessed. Oh, I know that, I know you've been through it. I know that there's a lot of pain from your past, but that jar is redeemed. Oh, nobody picked you in the circle. As a kid, you were always the one when they went to pick up sports teams that you were the last one standing there. Well, God's called you his chosen. See, the labels that God puts on our life have to become more powerful than the labels that other people have put on our life. And if you never get to a place in your journey with God that you have the courage to allow his labels to become more sticky than the labels that have been put on you, then you will always feel like you're living in the gap. I love what Paul said. He said, forgetting what? <laughs> he said, forgetting the things that are behind me 
that I'm pressing on. And that's what that idea of is letting go of the labels, the things that are from the past, the things that are constantly, they're they're the whispers along the wall that are telling you, trying to get your eyes off of Jesus. Like at some point in your life, you've got to make the decision that the labels aren't going to define you anymore. And you've got to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak into your life and for you to forget about the past and begin to move forward into what he's got for you. You know, I had to get rid of a lot of labels in my life. There's no way that I could have been walking in God's will for my life, carrying all of these labels. But another thing that I had to really do in my life is the second thing. The second thing that's really a restriction in our life are lids. Like some of you today, you've got labels, but some of you have lids. And lids are, they're the areas of our life that have been off limits to God. Right? Like, like there's some areas we're cool God with you kind of being able to speak into that and all that, but there's some areas that are off limits to God. And this represents your heart. Like labels or the mind, like I gotta, I gotta take victory over my mind. The lids are the heart. What's the attitude of my heart? Like, am I gonna live for God fully surrendered? Like, God, you can have every part of me or am I gonna kind of live for God like that kind of separated plate at Thanksgiving when you don't want all your food to touch, right? And you're like, God, you can have that little portion on my plate, but the rest of it is kind of my portion and you'll never close the gap. Parents, you will end up being what you keep telling your kids, telling them like, listen, you could be anything that you want in life. You could do anything like, like work hard and, and excel yourself, like do all that and, and, and watch what God does. But yet then God starts speaking to us about these labels and lids in our life. And then we pull back and we're not courageous enough to take a step spiritually, but we're courageous enough to tell our kids to do it. We end up living our life with this lid. For Simon, his lid was, was pride and arrogance and a religious spirit. For me, my lid, and I've had many through the years, but the lid that really was the one that was the most restrictive to me was pride. I mean, pride to me was so bad. Like when we got, when Andrea and I got married, I think it was like the first year and we had an argument. And um, I know you guys don't have arguments, but we had arguments. And, and she looks at me and, and I don't even remember what we were arguing about, but she looks at me and she says, you think you're always right. You think you're always right. Now listen to how idiotic my response was. <laughs> I looked at her and I said, no, I don't think I'm always right. But I am right 99.9% of the time. (laughs) Yeah, that didn't go over too well either. What happened was, is this kind of pride that was in my life began to become a lid that was keeping me from all that God wanted to do in my life. And so... How many know that 
Like Jesus loves us the way we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. And so sometimes he allows you to walk through difficult seasons in your life in order to loosen the lid. And what's interesting is so many times we blame God for the seasons that are designed to release potential. And we blame him for those seasons. But for me, that season was the greatest embarrassment to date for me in my life. And it was the season that, that I said yes to God to step out and try to plant a church. And that was not really like, it was not me, but I've, I really sensed and we prayed and fasted since the Lord was calling us to do that. And I decided I was going to be courageous and do it. And it failed. And we were one of two couples that the, our denomination had set forth um, for the entire state of Florida to plant these churches. All the eyes were on us. One succeeded and one failed. And it was ours. And it just devastated me. For five years, I carried unforgiveness and bitterness in my heart towards God. Like I, I wore the Christian clothes and kind of went to church, all that stuff. But I was so bitter towards God because, oh God, like you told me to step out and to do it. And I was, I didn't want to do it, but I stepped out and did it. And then you pulled the rug out from underneath me and I just, just devastated me. But what I didn't realize until five years later is that God was using that as a way to loosen the lid of pride on my life because he saw that the potential that he had for me was far greater than the season that I was currently in. And it was 2012. I'd been on staff here for maybe six, maybe six months at that time and went away to a conference with some of the other staff members and they let go of a conference service early and I went back to my hotel room was gonna take a nap and just felt restless. And so I got into the Bible and started, didn't even know where to start reading, but I just started reading. And for three hours, that turns into an appointment set by the Holy Spirit that I had no idea I was walking into. And I mean, I cried and I laid on the floor the, the, the floor, the carpet was wet from where my head was and just just repenting, repenting for all of this stuff that I just kept carrying in my life that was keeping me from God's best in my life. And I learned something then that has really been a part of my entire life moving forward, and that's this, that I'm never gonna hold on to something tighter than I hold on to God. I'm not gonna hold on to my finances tighter. I'm not gonna hold on to my relationships tighter. I'm not gonna hold on to my personality and put myself in a little box, right? Based off my personality tighter. Like I am gonna hold on to God tighter than anything else in my entire life. And my question for you today is like, how are you gonna live your life? How are you gonna finish this year? How are you gonna finish the next 10 or 20 or 30 years or six months, whatever God has for you. Like how, how are you gonna finish? 
Are you gonna be like Paul that says, I'm gonna forget the things behind me and I'm gonna press on forward to all the things that you've called me to? Or am I gonna live a settled life? Am I gonna be okay with just the status quo? Being okay carrying around my labels and my lids and checking off the God box on Sundays and God, you can have this little compartment in my plate, but the rest of it is all mine. Like, like at what point do you get so tired and so exhausted and so miserable and tired of all the questions? At what point do you stop doing that and begin stepping into the full potential of what God has created you for at what point, my guess is you've got to get to a place to where the pain of the present becomes more painful than the pain of staying where you are. Friend, it takes courage, it takes boldness, it takes trust to say, I'm gonna step outside of the labels and the lids that I've grown comfortable with, and I'm gonna step into a season of the unknown where I know God's calling me deeper, but I have no idea what that step is gonna look like. And to me, that's the difference. You either play it safe because it's predictable, or you be courageous and you step into a world of the unknown but knowing that you're stepping into his full potential for your life. Church, I wanna take a moment at the end of the service and I wanna pray for those of you that are tired. You're tired of allowing the labels to define your life. You're tired of allowing the lid, the areas of your life that have been off limits to God and you're just kind of going through the motions, feeling like life is purposeless, like meaningless, there's no passion. Today, I wanna pray for you because I believe that God wants to take the things from the past and kick them behind you and to put your focus on him and his full potential for your life. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, be sure to share it with your friends and tag us at TransformTLH. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to seeing your face in the place someday. Have a great week.